Hi guys and welcome to another episode of Inside Bristol Live, a weekly podcast that takes you behind the headlines and inside your local newsroom. This week I'm your host Bronwyn Weatherby and I'll be filling in for our esteemed colleague Alex Ballinger who is away again this week. Um, I think he's getting a taste of the sunshine. Before we get started with this week's show don't forget to find us on Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast from. You can rate, review and subscribe to us there. Also find us on Twitter at IBL Podcast. Joining me this week as well is Matt Aldous, and you can find him on Twitter, oh, no, at don't. Matt Aldous. Um, please troll him there. <laughs> um, you can find me on Twitter, at Bron Weatherby. It would be great to hear some of your feedback on the show. So up today, we've got uh, senior reporter Tristan Cork. He's going to be talking to us all things Edward Colston. He was a huge historic figure. However, he had a big part to play in Bristol's slave trade, and we're going to be discussing the plaque that's proposed to go on the statue in the city centre and why it's controversial. Next up, we'll have Michael Young. Um, He's our education reporter, but this week he's uh, going to be talking to us about something slightly more sinister. It's a court case involving a Bristol head teacher who has recently been convicted of a historic sex abuse case. Warning to anyone who um, might find this difficult, uh, we are going to be talking about sex abuse and the court case, so be aware. Last but certainly not least, we've got Robin Murray. He's our What's On reporter. He's going to be talking to us about nightclub Thekla, which is in the city centre. Um, it's celebrating its 60th birthday this year. So he's going to be taking us through a bit of Thekla's history. Hope you enjoy the show. Uh, let's just jump into our first chat with Tristan. Bronwyn, hello. Hello. Um, can you explain what you're talking about today? So this week we are talking about Edward Colston, specifically the statue of Edward, Edward Colston and specifically a plaque which is proposed to be mounted on the side of the statue of Edward Colston. That's the news story for this week for Edward Colston. Even though he died almost 300 years ago, he is still making news in Bristol. Yeah, can you take us through a bit of that news, uh, that history? Okay, rather? so Edward Colston was Bristol-born. Um, he was born in the middle of the 1600s, 17th century. He moved to London, and in the aftermath of the Civil War and the restoration of Charles II, he did well for himself in London, in the markets, and the finance, in the trading and merchant world, and by the sort of... 1670-ish, he was quite a senior person, basically the person who ran the Royal Africa Company, Mm. which was a a monopoly authorised by the king, Charles II, who also had shares in it, to do the transatlantic slave trade. Now, this slavery obviously has been around for millennia, since the dawn of humans probably, and uh, but this was the first time it had been done on a pretty much industrial scale. So boats from England would go to uh, West Africa um, laden with goods and they would then trade them goods with the chiefs of the tribes in Africa for humans, for slaves, and then take them to the New World, the plantations of the Caribbean and North America and South America as well, although that was more Spanish. Then come back with the goods that were produced by those slaves, i.e. sugar, uh, cocoa, tobacco. And Edward Colston was pretty much in charge of that and he had his own money and his own ships that did that. And then there was pressure from his home city of Bristol to kind of break that monopoly that London had with the Royal Africa Company. He left the Royal Africa Company and kind of changed his allegiances to Bristol, got that monopoly broken and then opened up the transatlantic slave trade to Bristol's ships and that provided a massive boom to the Bristol economy. And in the late part of the 1600s and into the the 18th century, he um, was a very rich man on the back of the transatlantic slave trade. Then, as he became an older man, he started, he didn't, I don't think he married or had children, so he had lots of money to give away and not, not nobody to spend it on his family. And he started making donations and was very philanthropic in Bristol itself um, and lots of things. Uh, he, he founded the Colston School, which is a, a private bo- uh, boys' 
school in French, eh? up there, sort of Stapleton, up there, mm. that way, just off the M32. Um, that still bears his name. That was the school he founded. There are lots of other things that have his name but weren't necessarily set up by him but were set up later using the money he sort of invested in in the city and is kept in trust and um, he was a big merchant venturer. They're closely linked to Colston. So as well as the slave trade, what you're saying, he was big into philanthropy. Um, so there are there's a kind of duo relationship that yeah. he has with Bristol, one that is very much ingrained in the slave trade history of Bristol and the other that is ingrained in the economic wealth and um, prosperity of Bristol, I guess. Yeah, I mean, there's a, t- there's a double, you know, lots of people got very rich in Bristol on the back of the slave trade. Um, and you can see the uh, the big mansions in Clifton and around uh, around that part of the city um, that were owned by the people who who maybe not did the actual voyages that t- took the slaves, but maybe owned the plantations that bought them mm. and kept them. Um, well, so can you tell me a little bit? And and for those who you know don't know Bristol or maybe haven't even visited Bristol before, what does the slave trade actually? mean culturally for um, modern day Bristol? It's a re- very difficult question to answer. Not only is there the legacy that Bristol had such an important part to play in the, the you know, tra- the transatlantic slave trade, which by any de- definition you want to give it was mass genocide because millions of um, of African people died on the crossings and then when they got to the plantations and you know the best outcome if you were lucky you would survive after a, at the end of a life and die a, an old person at the end of a life of, of slavery of servitude yeah, it's awful. Yeah. Of, of you know horribleness yeah so bristol's got that legacy and that is something that history is something that isn't really still to this day that well known or recognised in Bristol, people, you know, most people go, oh yeah, Bristol and the slave trade, and they know that the, the city was involved, but how and you know the city collectively and culturally hasn't really addressed that. And then you've got the added dimension that the descendants of those slaves, some of them, came back to Bristol or came to Bristol with the Windrush generation in the fifties and sixties and and 70s their descendants now are bristol born and bred and are looking at around the city and thinking why is it why are a lot loads of things named after yeah because the name's everywhere isn't it yeah so yeah i've done lots of uh, research and lots of stories about this there are i think you know i i reckon i'd i'd put it at more than 50 things named after colston i mean there are so many things named after colston in one area of the city around the colston hall that some maps, and if you look at the Bristol A to Z, it describes that area as Colston. It's, it's his own place. Wow, like name. its own area, yeah. yeah. So that's the Colston Hall, the Colston Tower, which either side of Colston Street. And then you've got Colston Avenue, which is the the main road that goes around the cenotaph. And then there's Colston Mini Mart, <laughs> the shop opposite, and lots of things like that. And then there's obviously the Colston School, and then there's Colston Girls School, and then there's just, you know, Col- the, the pubs shops, businesses, schools, streets, tower blocks, everything you mm. can think of that is named after him. And they're really at the the heart of Bristol. Yeah. Um so they they're very obvious to anyone who visits and especially to the people who live here, aren't they? Can you tell us a bit more about the statue then because obviously okay. his statue is in the center as well. Yeah. So on Colston Avenue next to the cent- next to the cenotaph is the statue of Edward Colston. It was erected in 1895, so it's in the in terms of um, Colston's history, it's been here. He was dead for longer without a statue in Bristol than there's been a statue for. So it's only it's near near enough. It's only been a hundred or hundred and twenty years since it's been there. When it was erected, they had a public subscription to it. You could pay, and they didn't have enough money. Not you know, so it wasn't universally want, welcomed as a thing. You know, people weren't that bothered. Oh right. Okay. There was opposition back in history. You know, back in the start of the 20th century people there were people voices saying actually we don't think we should be doing this but anyway the colston statue the plaque on the colston statue which was erected at the time says uh erected by the citizens of bristol as a memorial 
of one of the most virtuous and wise sons of their city. And that's all it says, dated 1895. Not much mention of his philanthropy, to be fair, but, you know, virtuous and wise sons, but then obviously no mention of the slave trade. It does give you uh, this idea of someone who only had maybe the best reputation yeah. and um, sort of the best, you know, history with the city. It doesn't, you know, give you anything else, does it? Indeed. And, you know, to have your statue in the centre of a city, you, you, you know, people will automatically assume that that person did great things. Um, there's a, the other statue in that area is of Edmund Burke, the city's MP, who... It, is also slightly very vaguely controversial with some of his views at the time, but he was the man who famously said the only thing, or paraphrased, the only thing that is required for evil to succeed is that good men do nothing. Ah, he, right. He, he, yeah. he gave quote. the world that quote. Um, yes, so indeed, the, the, there's a statue, even more than the statue really, if you, if you want a bigger uh, thing for Colston, is the Colston Tower, which you know, where, from where I live in Bedminster, where you live, if mm. we walk up, you can see... Looking across the city at night, it's the main thing that red, bright red letters yeah. illuminated. It says Colston Tower. From anywhere in, you are in the south of the city, that's that's what you that's your view of the city centre. So his name is literally up in lights mm. from one of the tallest buildings in the city centre. So, you know, it's not like he is something from history, Colston. He is very much present day Bristol. People say maybe we should leave this in the past. It's very difficult to do that when today his statue's there, his name is in lights. Tomorrow his statue is there, his name is in lights. So there, that's why I think there is so much turbulent argument about Colston and his legacy and how Bristol recognises him now mm -hmm. because he's, he's ever-present. So what are people proposing then? Okay, so the council have already taken a decision to have a second plaque attached to the side of the statue. And this came as a result of partly because of lots and lots of, you'd say vandalism attacks, but it's slightly less than that. It's, it's more kind of creative. In the past couple of years, his face has been painted white, the statue's face. He's had shackles attached to him. He's had yarn bombed ball and chain. Last year, a plaque was put on the side of his statue unofficially, Yes, to I it. saw this, yeah. Yeah, which referenced the, the fact that he was involved in the slave trade or Bristol was involved in the slave trade. And that kind of, I guess, focused minds at the council thinking, you know, maybe that's a good idea. And also maybe they view it as a way to um, kind of compromise, really, and think that if they agree to having a second plaque on it, which explains more about Colston's role in the slave trade then maybe the attacks on the statue will stop yeah um it is a, a it is a listed monument so you have to be you know they're, they're supposed to their duty band to protect it as a, as a as a thing and um i guess you know the one part of part of the argument that the council are proposing is uh is because you know if they put this plaque on there then maybe the attacks on it will stop now the second plaque the wording of it obviously going to be quite contentious what would you say what do mm. what should be said and how they came about it it was a, done by almost a committee really sort of local historians and also they involved the children of colston primary school now colston okay, primary interesting yeah now colston primary school is in cotton and it's named colston primary school through some quirk of of history nothing to do with edward colston it was named Co Colston Primary School because it was set up in what was an emergency wartime school created in the Second World War. After Colston Girls School was bombed, they sent they basically converted some houses into a school. And so it was that was where Colston Girls School partly relocated to at the top of the hill in Cotton. And then after the war, Colston Girls School set you know withdrew from that school, but it was still a school, so the local council went, let's carry on using it as a primary school. Um, and so it just became known as Col uh, as Colston Primary School because it was Colston Girls Schools for just a couple of years. It's been Colston Primary School for the rest of ever since the war. And last year and earlier this year, the parents, the governors, the teachers, the staff, and the uh, the children all kind of talked about with each other 
about whether it should be renamed and they decided it should be and for, so when they go back in September to, to school it's going to be called Cotton Garden School Cotton Gardens Primary School so, so people around the city you know it's very much on the public consciousness yeah yeah definitely I mean that's not the only place obviously the Colston Hall the, probably the most famous thing that's named after Colston in Bristol Colston Hall is now closed for refurbishment when it opens in 2020 it won't have Colston's name mm. that decision has been very controversial there's been a, quite a big backlash from people saying, you know, law will always still call it mm. Colston Hall. I'm sure they will. But uh, it's it, that's been the most contentious and most high-profile uh, dropping of the Colston name. There's been a couple of others, the Colston Yard pub, which is opposite the BRI, the top of the hill that, uh, that the Colston Hall is on. That is now called the Bristol Yard. That was quiet, fairly quietly renamed by the owners after mm. they took over. They just dropped the Colston name and called it something different. Pub names change all the time, obviously. Other things haven't changed their names despite pressure. So Colston's Girls' School wasn't a girls' school that Colston set up. It was set up by the Merchant Venturers. I guess the link would be that they would you maybe be using money that, you know, been invested from money that had been invested from money that had been invested by Colston, maybe. Yeah. But it was obviously an alternative girls' school to the boys' school that Colston did set up. Colston Girls' School, there's a lot of pressure for that to be renamed and the, the Merchant Venturers who run it said that they didn't didn't want to rename it, they're not going to rename it. That's an interesting one because the Merchant Venturers very quick when they took over other schools in South Bristol, comprehensive schools and primary schools, to rename them. So the press, you know, they're, they're not averse to renaming schools. It's just the There's ones, only some schools. Only some schools. Yeah. The one with Colston's name on it, they don't want to rename. Anyway, so the plaque that the, the council are proposing to put up or the part of the council, and they're applying for planning permission for this currently, reads, as a high official of the Royal Africa Company from 1680 to 1692, Edward Colston played an active role in the enslavement of over 84,000 Africans, including 12,000 children, of whom over 19,000 died en route to the Caribbean and America. Colston also invested in the Spanish slave trade and enslaved-produced sugar. As Tory MP for Bristol from 1710 to 1713, he defended the city's right to trade in enslaved Africans. Bristolians who did not subscribe to his religious and political beliefs were not permitted to benefit from his charities. Um, now, I think the first part of that, people are not uh, challenging. That's a historical fact. You know, you can go and look at the records and see that the the numbers of ships and people and deaths isn't disputed maybe it's an underestimation as well i think the the second half of it is the contentious bit the fact that it's called he, he's named as a tory mp is obviously conservatives in bristol at the present time aren't happy with that he was a tory mp but the, the conservative party wasn't the same conservative party or tory tory party as it was in 1710 no so um there's there's a you know that could be that's contentious, certainly. The last line is probably the most interesting for me. Bristolians who did not subscribe to his religious and political beliefs were not permitted to benefit from his charities. Now, Yeah, is there any evidence of that? Yes. So the whole thing why people are... There's a great groundswell of, of, of opinion that does not like this reassessment of Colston and just, you know, says, well, you know, he was a huge uh, philanthropist to the city... And that comes from, you know, you can look around, you see the arms houses he built and the school he built. Now, the school he opened in 1710, um, paid for by himself, uh, by his own money, created this school. However, about eight years before that, he, when he, you know, started his philanthropy in Bristol, he approached the people who ran Bristol's other big school at the time and said, I want to invest in your school, build you a sort of new you know, double your school in size, build you new facilities. And they said, great, you know, thanks very much. We'll have your money. That's wonderful. Thank you very much, Mr. Colston. But he said, there is the condition on you accepting this money is that you don't take any children who aren't Church of England. Now, in Bristol at the time, there was obviously a great movement of nonconformity in religion, you mm -hmm. know, Methodists, Quakers, and so on. As well as I imagine, you know, uh, Catholics, Catholics uh, and well, Jewish yeah. people maybe as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. So anyone who wasn't Church of England, 
the condition hit Colston put on the de- donation of that money, which would have been millions in today's terms, um, was that only people he thought, only the children of of people who believed in the same strand of Christianity as he did, would be permitted to go to the school he was investing in, donating to. To their credit, I guess, the school, that people running the school said, actually, no, we're not going to take your money. We accept Quakers, children of Quakers and children of Methodists and and, and so on. So, um, you know, we, it would be too much of a uh, constriction. So no thanks, but no thanks. So Colston went away, licked his wounds and came back with his own plan to build his own school, which to which the only the children of Church of England parents would uh, were allowed to go to. I see. So would you say that is a accurate portrayal of one part of Edward yeah. Colston's uh, life, given that it's been included next to the, you know, ordin- ordinary current plaque? Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because what they're doing there is saying they're not, they're kind of, e- they're, they're challenging even his philanthropy. The, the people who've come up with this plaque are challenging even the philanthropy. And that's the that's the main leg the quotes pro Colston people have to stand on, as it were. Yeah. Is that, you know, oh yeah, he did these terrible things in terms of merchants, but you know, the, the and his involvement in that and knowledge of that might be questionable and, you know, is the thing that was done at the time. You know, he probably never went to Africa or the Caribbean to see the slave plant. You know, he literally just sort of signed off, you know, yes, send these 10 ships next week or whatever. But the argument that he's a great philanthropist is, you know, you know, has has always been his, the reason why Colston's name is everywhere and his statue's there. And this second plaque even challenges that. And it's that quirky thing where if you put this plaque up there now, it, it, it almost challenges the why have you got that statue there in the first place then? Mm. Or why have you got why are you continuing to have that statue there? It um, in the very least is going to discredit the initial plaque. It, well, yeah, I mean the initial plaque it kind of just says he's virtuous. But yeah, exactly. It con- directly contradicts it, doesn't it? And it's fascinating and this plaque will go up there. It has the feeling that this is just kind of a temporary measure and actually what the people who are saying, let's look at Colston again, why is this going on? And, you know, they were putting pressure on the Colston Hall to re- be renamed. They challenged the merchant venturers about the name of the school and they're challenging the council about the, the statue. That they, What they want to see, I guess, is Colston's statue in a museum. A museum to slavery and and the abolition of slavery, which to which in which Bristol had played a really important part about... The you know a uh, hundred years after Colston's death, the the campaign to abolish slavery was uh, was seeded in Bristol and mm. um, brought through in Bristol. So if Bristol hasn't got a, that kind of museum, there's nothing that there's something in the M shed, just a little thing in the M shed, but there's not really any kind of uh, thing that describes and explains what happened in this huge important part of Bristol's. It's very surprising yeah, that we don't there, have anything like no, that there's, here. There's 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 a corner of the M shed, but that's it. Liverpool's got one. There's the the the, the place in France. The name escapes me for the moment. Uh, they uh, is it Bordeaux? I think, but they the place where the the slave ships went from France. They've got one, and Bristol doesn't. The more you look into it, the more you think that is weird. And actually, Colston's statue, if you're going to have it anywhere, it maybe it should be in a museum. If it's still in the city centre, then at least this plaque explains a little bit. But it, it, the, the plaque will raise more questions for people than it answers. As the reporter who's been mainly covering issues around not only the plaque, but Colston and, and, and everything mm. that's been going on with it in the last couple of years, you've been hearing both sides of the argument yeah. um, a lot. Is there anything, obviously, you know, in the interest of balance here, you know, People are very passionate about keeping Colston. Yeah. What are their arguments and, you know, why do you think people are so adamant on keeping that part of their history so in, in the public eye? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think the it's absolutely fair to say that I'd imagine the majority of the people from Bristol don't see the point of this, really. And also they think that Colston is... 
part of Bristol's history, an important part of Bristol's history. And therefore, why not have things named after him? And the accusation that they often make is that that kind of changing the name of pubs and consulate halls and removing a statue, you're trying to brush that history under the carpet. And there is a legitimacy to that because the worst thing in the world would be if you took Colston off Bristol's map, if you had everything that was named Colston was changed and then you didn't do anything else to create a, like you say, create a museum or something, if that was it, then it'd be very easy for people to grow up in Bristol not having any clue about the slave trade. And that would be the worst of all worlds. Mm. And there is a there is value in that argument that we have to be very careful that we're not brushing this history under the carpet, that by removing Colston, removing his name and his statue, that uh, future generations will just, you know, won't be on their radar at all. It won't, at least now with his statue there, people are talking about who he was and and what, what he did. Mm. There's also a strong sense of opinion amongst people of Bristol that his philanthropy was kind of great, you know, really good. And that was very important. And the arguments I hear um, quite a lot from people is that, you know, he was just uh, doing what everyone else was doing at the time. But he at least was the person who turned around at the end, you know, when he'd made all his money and gone, I'm going to give it back to the people of Bristol and in, you know, in all the things he did. So there is, you know, there is a lot of value to that argument. And there was, this, this, the, after I did the story about the plaque, the uh, one of uh, a conservative councillor in South Bristol, Richard Eddy, came up very strongly against the idea of this plaque. He called it a pathetic bid to mount a secondary revisionist plaque on Colston statue. He described it as historically illiterate, a further stunt to try and reinvent Bristol's history. It would be a further slap in the face for true Bristolians and our city's history delivered by ignorant left-wing incomers. Wow, that's strong. That's strong. And he even said that if someone was to rip it down or damage it, that would be maybe justified. So... So he's condoning. Yeah, yeah. He's he's not, well, condoning, maybe he's, yeah, he's kind of... Condoning, cons- taking the plaque off when it's there. Theft or vandalism from a, uh, a conservative councillor. Now, that it, that's probably the more extreme <laughs> view, but he, you know, he's speaking from a from a group, you know, he's got the, the people of his area, the people of South Bristol, maybe the people of the traditional Bristol are, you know, they are kind of, this is, for them, this is, you know, another chip away at their, everything they've they've ever mm. known. The, they Generations of, of children in Bristol went to school and were told Edward Colston was a great man. And this now is kind of, it's almost like Bristol's being told that Santa Claus isn't real. Yeah. And there's a lot of backlash to that. And it's, and you know, you can understand it. You know, I can see where it's coming from. Yeah. Um, can you give me, you know, maybe in brief, some of the more powerful arguments for this change, this kind of revolution of our understanding of Colston and its acknowledgement in Bristol? Um, okay. So effectively, the, the I, I guess the, the kind of, for me, the the strongest argument about questioning why there's Edward Colston everywhere is that what is is what does this message? What is the message that the city is giving out to people in 2018 about where the city's come from, what the city believes in, what the values of the city are now? That you have up in lights in the centre of the city, the name of a man who was pretty much directly responsible for the deaths of 20,000 people. And you have his statue in the centre of the city with the words saying that he was a virtuous man. Now, if you start from today, would we put up a statue of Edward Colston? I don't think anyone would. Um, Maybe they would, I don't know, but it would be very hard to think that that would happen. So just because it's been there for 125 years, uh, should it be there for the next 125 years? Um, and what does that say about Bristol that, that it is still there, that Colston's name is still up in lights? Um, and then there's a secondary message that it gives to the 
the generations of um, African Caribbean people who now call Bristol home, who were born in Bristol. Their ancestors were enslaved by people like Edward Colston. And now they're trying to make their way in Bristol in 2018. And what's interesting about that is that they, um, we've had this year of change thing, we've had these city conversations. And what was interesting and about that is that um, they actually, the feeling I have had from listening, being at both of those events so far is that they would actually prefer to concentrate on the here and now and how are they getting on in Bristol in terms of um, discrimination against, uh, you know, employment and education. Um, and the thing about Colston is almost an argument to sort of have after dinner almost. Do you know what I mean? It's right. like a, a kind of, you know, let's not, let's not worry. You know, if you focus on that rather than what's happening to us now in Bristol, then you're doing us a disservice. Mm. Um so there is an argument to say, you know, we've got more important things to worry about. And the people who uh, challenge countering Colston and that kind of reinvention of Bristol's history, reappraisal of it, would say, you know, why you were bothered about this slavery 300 years ago, you should be worried about modern day slavery now. Um, <laughs> of course, you can do both. You know, yeah. they're not mutually exclusive, but... Um, so there is powerful arguments against this by saying, you know, you, there are better things to worry about. However, every day passes, Colston's statue is still in the centre of Bristol with a plaque saying he was a virtuous man. Colston Tower is still there with the lights on at night. And uh, do, is that the city that Bristol wants to be? Thank you, Tristan. Well, I don't know about you, but I found that incredibly interesting. If you're interested in reading more on Colston, um, then please visit our website, bristol.live. We have written, Tristan specifically has written a lot about it, and uh, it's a very nuanced subject, so please visit our website. Anyway, up next is Michael Young. He's going to be talking about the court case that he went to recently involving a Bristol head teacher um, involved in a historic sex case. So let's talk to him now. So we've got Michael in the room. Hi, Michael. Hello, Bronwyn. How are you doing today? Yeah, very well. Okay, so um, we're here to talk about a court case, aren't we, that you covered recently, mm -hmm. the case of Alistair Parry. That's right. Um, can you tell me a bit about the background to this court case? So Alistair Parry was the former head teacher um, at Coast and Girls School. He started off as a teacher at Coast and Girls School in 1999 as a history teacher, uh, moved through the ranks over the next sort of 17 years, to become its executive principal, which is a birth head teacher um, and takes care of several schools under the trust. Alistair Perry as well at that time was um, a churchgoer, if you like. He calls himself a staunch Christian. Um, sometime in the year 2000, shortly after he moved to Bristol, he attacked a 16-year-old girl. Um, uh, many things we cannot say so as not to identify her but she was a 16 year old girl at that time the first attack happened at his house when he offered to tutor her in maths why maths we don't know uh, but he offered to tutor her in maths took her to his bedroom sexually assaulted her there the second time round, he invited her to come back to his house to babysit his one-year-old son she said okay because she thought he was not going to be there because he told her parents that he was going to a church home group with his wife. It was a lie, as the church would say he feigned it. And what happened was he got, he stayed back, claimed he had marking to do. And when she was sat downstairs, he came downstairs, lifted her, put her on his lap and sexually assaulted her again by touching her uh, underneath her clothes. She, at that point of the second attack, she was on crutches and so couldn't get away. The assault lasted 10 minutes each time and each time after he would apologise and disappear. And disappear out of the house or out of the room? Did out of the room, go? yes. He would, he would leave the room. Uh, he would apologise profusely and then leave the room. And so those were the two assaults. 
that we had over a sort of six-day trial. If you want to go back to how long this entire, from, from allegations from start to finish, the allegations came in in 2016 and lasted all the way to trial in 2018. There was a collapsed trial in 2017, which was, again, very harrowing for the victim. Why, can you discuss why the trial collapsed initially? Not entirely. We can now know that the trial collapsed because of legal reasons. And some of those legal reasons, as we heard in court, is that there was fresh evidence. We more or less know what happened. But again, revealing any more might jeopardise any ongoing investigations or might jeopardise identifying the victims. So therefore, we can't say I see, but yeah. it was um, it was very valid reasons. Certainly, when the trial got delayed in twenty seventeen, you must imagine how much of an effort it took for this girl to come forward. You know, it took nearly sixteen years before she agreed to come forward, and that is a huge step. And then going to trial is a huge step, and then to see it fall over is again a massive sort of disappointment. At that point, her debt was not very well. And uh, it severely affected his health and, and hers, you know, it severely destroyed her confidence. You don't know why the trial did not go ahead. Mm. She won't be, you know, she might not have known. Or even if she did, it would have been, you know, terrifying to think that she had tried to bring a prosecution and it might have collapsed. Mm. But obviously it was all in the dark at that point until June this year when the trial went ahead in Cardiff Crown Court. Of course, it's... A very difficult thing for um, a victim of of this kind of crime to come forward anyway. Mm-hmm. But do you think that it was made more difficult because of the station he held at that time, as well as presently and within his community, mm. uh, in particular, the type of person he was? Uh, funny you should mention that, because one of the reasons she gave for coming forward was that he was actually a teacher and therefore had access to... Th- well, if you look at Coast and Girls School over the years, thousands of girls who have come through his classes actually mentioned she's moved past it. She's moved past the assaults. And it was only when she went to meet her psychiatrist in 2016 or in 2015, towards the start of 2016, that they realised that actually a lot of what's happening to her at that point was linked to a sexual assault, which she confided in her psychiatrist. And the psychiatrist could not obviously say anything to police or anyone until she agreed to let her psychiatrist, uh, again, who we cannot name, a break confidentiality. Mm. And so her psychiatrist did, and therefore the police then got involved. She was very nervous as a result of the effects of the assaults of being around men. And during the first interview with a male police officer, it was really difficult for her again to even say anything so then you got to arrange for a female officer obviously support workers to be there with her and something like that can be nerve-wracking just just to do it now she did not come forward in the initial stages because she was a 16 year old girl and it was difficult because her parents knew about the assault and her dad did not go to the police and then the church leaders found out about the assault and the church leaders, again, did not go to the police. They said it was a matter for him and God. They did not believe that they needed to go to the police. Yeah, That um, won't be the first time that we've seen that or that has been reported, that type of attitude towards um, yeah. sexual assault. Again, uh, we must take this from a balanced view. Yeah. On hindsight, it's always easy to criticise them for doing it. But you can see when you know a group of people come together or of reputable status as church leaders should be it's nearly a pending environment where they agree now i'm not condoning what they've done uh, in not reporting it you should always report sexual assault but you know think of them all sat in a room or agreeing in an echo chamber and that's that's what happened they all agreed in an echo chamber not to do it the parents did not want to report it as well uh, because they did not want to put her through the strain of it but Again, on hindsight, her dad regretted doing that, which came out in a victim impact statement. It destroyed their relationships. And uh, yeah, it was really tough to hear that. Going back to his, uh, I guess, status, um, Mm. you mentioned in the beginning, and it was an aspect that was 
uh, talked about a lot in court, I believe, the fact that he was obviously, by the end of his career, a head teacher at a very reputable school, mm. but also a churchgoer. Um, did he, after the assaults were known about within his uh, church, within that community, did he play an active role in the church going forward? Is that something you know? Yes. So what happens is we know that the leadership team at the church changed and even the new leaders did question him about it. And he, uh, according to what he told the court, he stayed silent and did not admit or did not say he did not do it or did not accept or deny the allegations. So yes, he carried on going to church. Um, one of the support letters that was read out in court for Alistair Perry was from one of his fellow churchgoers and about his uh, his faith. And then we obviously as well had support letters from the governors at Coast and Girls School and a trust, uh, which is the Ventress Trust now run by the Society of Merchant Ventress and University of Bristol, um, supporting Alistair Perry's good character. Uh, it's worth pointing out at this point that the governors would do that because a man is innocent until proven guilty. So again, on hindsight, it was seen ill-advised, but actually he was innocent at the point of those letters being They're written. supporting someone that they know and exactly. don't know to have committed that crime yet until the court of law said they are guilty of that. Obviously, yeah. yes, because the verdict haven't come in at that point. No. It was just allegations at that point. Something like this must shake a school. I mean, you work primarily in education. Mm -hmm. That is your patch, and that's what made you so involved in this case. Mm -hmm. Something like that must have such a, an impact on a school. Mm -hmm. What do you think it's had on... Colston. There were a lot of questions. Now, when we talk about school, we think about students first and then obviously staff second. There were a lot of questions when Alistair Perry was made head teacher, then made executive head teacher, only to go less than a year later. A lot of questions around, sorry, not less, about a year later. And there were questions why he left so suddenly, you know, having taken office in perhaps the, one of the best state schools in the country, never mind Bristol. And uh, there were questions around that. And then the allegations obviously came to light less than a couple of months after he left his post uh, in terms of a Crown Court trial. And that really then shook the foundations of the school because I think only a select few people knew that he faced those allegations. And when we say select few, we mean some of the senior leadership team at Coast and Girls. The students didn't know about it. And so they obviously then read about it. The thing about Alistair Perry is he was, from what I hear, quite a well-liked teacher mm. as a teacher. Again, not condoning what he did, but a lot of girls who've gone through Coasting Girls knew him. A lot of them took history. A lot of them had direct mentorship, if you like, with him. So at Coasting Girls, they do do a mentoring system where students come and meet a teacher one-on-one. So... And that's it. There was a witness at this trial who was a former pupil of Alistair Perry who was totally disconnected to this case in that, except for Alistair Perry, who then gave evidence about how he made sexual jokes in classes and he liked to look down their tops. And in one very bizarre incident, when they came back from a shopping trip, to get them to change into their tops and parade in front of him. And that was very bizarre as well, or to make them to... Um, she gave evidence about how her friend was made to do a, a gymnastic move in front of him, um, sort of a backward bridge, if you like, uh, which obviously exposes caused, your midriff. And yes, like yes. That. So yeah. it wasn't, uh, you know, you can see why that image was built up. Yeah, I guess it in the context of of what was going on, those that information regarding his previous behaviour, no matter how small it seemed at the time is important of building up the type of teacher he was. But you were saying mm. despite that or, you know, in spite of that, he was a well-liked teacher, it seemed. I wouldn't say well-liked. He was certainly, um, we heard about his teaching style mm. and, and we were asked about what his teaching style was like. And in Alistair Perry's words, he said, very humorous, confident. You know, he liked to do that. He liked to bring that into the classroom to have this rapport with the pupil. And you can see a lot of teachers. I heard a lot of teachers who had that great rapport with students. They talked like a student. They would talk down to you. And it was just overall quite interesting. Mm. But it was just seeing what Alistair Perry was like as a teacher. Again, he wasn't entirely very, you know, it doesn't sound like he was a very strict teacher. And you probably remember when you were in school how you liked the teachers who were not. Yeah, of course. <laughs> very strict. Um, and so 
He was certainly well liked higher up the ladder as well. Yeah, he produced brilliant results as a head teacher. Again, not excusing what he did, but purely from a fact he produced, he made Coast and Girls School. He, he oversaw Coast and Girls School becoming a state school from a private school. And that was a huge jump. And so, yeah, you know, you, he was very well liked in, in the trust. Why is it that we would report on something like this? What what makes reporting on a case such as this something that is involves something very private and very very difficult that's happened to someone? Why would we report on this? It's hugely important. You must imagine he has to sign a sex offenders register. That register is not freely available online or publicly. He has to sign that for ten years. And keeping in mind that he is a man of high standing, not just in the school's community, but in the overall education picture in this country, I would dare say, because of where Colson's Girls School is. Now, you must imagine that if a person like that gets to work with children again, that would be a real problem. I can bring you back to an example of two years ago where we reported on a former youth pastor who changed his name illegally and started working in churches, signed a record deal, played live on BBC Radio Bristol and then started working with children again. And the question then is that, you know, he changed his name illegally, did not tell the police and was prosecuted and convicted for it. And we reported that case from the moment his very first conviction and his second conviction and it's hugely important because can you imagine if this guy changed his name again Mm. that would be really worrying so we are talking about here not just holding the school to account and making sure in future they do check everything but at the same time also making sure that you know Alistair Perry does not work with children for the next 10 years for as long as he's on the sex offenders register I guess it's also important from the point of view that um, I'm not saying he has any more victims. I I don't know anything about that. But Mm. from the point of view of victims of this kind of crime, the reporting of it, I personally think, would help victims come forward and uh, tell the police about what happened to them. Or not even the police, maybe. Mm. Maybe someone they know and help them overcome that through hearing about someone else's story. Indeed. The judge did touch upon it in his sentencing that the reason he's being sentenced in a public court of law is part of that reason is that if anyone else has information to come forward. With sex offenders... Again, you know, we we have to remember that it takes a huge step for a victim to come forward. And I've certainly covered several cases over the last, over my career, where people have come forward to talk about their ordeal and led led to second and third investigations or fourth investigations. And even if they never lead to prosecutions, especially in historic cases, it can be difficult to bring prosecution. It allows the victim a chance to say something. You know, that step of bravery is hugely important for the victim as well. Um, Not just in terms of closure, but, you know, in terms of daring to speak out. And, you know, forget for a moment the wide-ranging impact of actually talking about your story. To to their personal well-being, it's incredibly important that they got through the stage of actually sharing it with, with, even if it's just a police officer. Mm. Yeah. I want to just go over briefly, um, I don't know if you've talked about this on the podcast before, but for those who might not know, even if you come forward and there's a court case and Mm. we as journalists cover it, wherever you are in the UK, there's, you know, rules against reporting who the victim is, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. This is very important because it helps ensure that people will come forward, even if they start doubting if something happened to them. Now, they should never have that doubt about whether to report a sexual assault, no matter how minor. And this is an important thing about, you know, why victims are given, alleged victims, even alleged victims are given anonymity. Every paper is enshrined, uh, you know, that is enshrined in law and every paper has to follow it. If you break that anonymity, you are facing serious questions from a judge about contempt. Mm. Uh, not just contempt, but sorry, not contempt, but you know, under the Sexual Offences Act, they have protection. It's very tricky when you report a case like this because you know that they got to know each other in church. 
you've got her age, which is an important part of the trial because um, uh, the sentencing guidelines are different for somebody who's under 16 and 16 and above. Mm. So her age is important. You've got to report that. But you can't report things like the street she, she was in or which church they went to. And therefore, if you can't report which church they went to, you can't report that the names of the church leaders and you can't report any more links that might identify her. And it's very difficult. There are There was so much in this case. If you sat in court that you would have heard that would have been very much devoid of in the article. What I mean was my final story did not cover the full scale of it because we had to protect the victim. But if you sat in court, you have heard everything about this case, mm. which again, you are not allowed to share. Anyone in court is not allowed to share on social media or anywhere else because that is against the law as well. And so we, we have to be very careful. I've run through it with news editors, sub-editors, the editor, we agreed this was what we we're going to do. If there were other media in the courtroom, we would have then have to sit down and discuss this is what we're going to do to prevent jigsaw identification. And it has happened, sadly, on several occasions with um, a, a good one was with, uh, you know, Chad Evans. I know yes. he's now being exonerated, obviously, but the when the case first came in, the alleged victim still has anonymity but somebody obviously shared her name on Twitter. It then, within an hour, been retweeted hundreds of times. That is against the law. Retweeting something is also against the law. So that's very important for people to remember. That's why Mm. we switch comments off and everything. Exactly. Is there anything that you want to add about this case that you feel our listeners would be interested in? Or um, Mm. If you're a victim of sexual assault, try and speak to someone about it. You know, uh, the NSPCC, of, uh, if, if you uh, if it's historic child sexual assault, the NSPCC is a very good way for you to get in touch with them. Um, if you feel like you have the strength to go and talk to the police, please be encouraged that the police will listen to you. Don't think that they will ridicule you for wasting their time. It's hugely important that you come forward. If you ever feel like that in Bristol, uh, there is a great support group that was founded on the back of one of our stories from a year ago that has hundreds of members, female members. Um, you can just search for it. On, it's called a meetup group. If you just put meetup sexual violence or sexual assault, you will find it on Google. Um, join the group. You know, if you feel like you can talk to someone, you, you can join the group and not go to the meetings. But if you feel like you want to go to the meetings, just listen to other people, please feel free to because... It's it's a very difficult thing to talk about and it's a very difficult thing to come forward and talk about. But the last thing people should do is feel afraid of what has happened to them. And they should, you know, if it's right to bring justice, then there you go. Excellent. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. Michael does a great job of covering some of the most important topics uh, that we cover here at Bristol Live. So thank you to him for talking to us today. So up next, we've got Robin. He's going to be talking about the 60th anniversary of one of Bristol's premier nightclubs, Beckler. So you've got a festival to go to this weekend. That's why you're rushing me through this podcast. I'd, yeah, I need to go and buy my baby wipes and my uh, Christmas um- <laughs> And your crisps. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what you need for a festival. Baby wipes right? and crisps. Maybe you shouldn't have those Baby crisps. Baby wipes, dry shampoo, crisps, peanuts, <laughs> apples. Are you going to a bar? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you know, bar foods are the best foods. And, um, you know, if you're going to a festival, they keep. They don't go yeah. off. The best festival cold tips beans. from Robin here. Cold, cold, cold like, beans are uh, cool. what you take to a festival. Oh, You okay. take cold beans. Just cans of beans. And you just eat them cold out the jar. Cold out of the jar. It's right. not a bad idea. In a tent. Well, you can eat them outside too. <laughs> you don't have to eat everything in the you tent. You don't have to eat it in the tent. Do you eat all your meals I'm privately? I'm just saying you're sleeping in a tent and you're eating multiple cans of beans. That's why I was... Um, there are probably filthier things going on in, in Matt's festival none tent. None of you are getting what I mean. I have a very respectable tent, thank you. <laughs> I'm hoping if this is included in the podcast, some of the listeners will get what I mean. But um, I'm trying to replay what you said in my head now. <laughs> Do... Can you repeat it in a jingle? <laughs> no. I will not be jingling today. Yeah, so the weather's not going to hold up for this festival then? No, so I'm off to Womad, uh, which is a very nice, tame festival. It's got a good lineup. 
Um, and it looked earlier like it was going to be lovely this weekend, as it has been all week. But I have just discovered that it's not going to be so nice. And I'm a bit upset. Listeners, Robin has a face like thunder. <laughs> he is not happy about this weather Which situation. Which ironically is what's forecast yeah. for Saturday. <laughs> pathetic so- fallacy. Very <laughs> pathetic. <laughs> Should we do some serious stuff? That's my job. Should we do some serious stuff? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So what are we here talking about today? We are talking about Fekla, uh, more specifically its 60th anniversary, which it is celebrating all year. Can I ask a quick question? Is, is it its 60th anniversary as a club? No, no. 60th anniversary since the boat was made. Right. Um, yeah. So it used this weekend, just gone to kind of... Um, commemorate that because it was Harbour Fest, of course. So it had loads of free gigs aboard um, the Hull, which has obviously welcomed many great bands over the years. I went to one on Sunday. It was really good. Who did good. you go and see? I saw Harvey Corson, who um, I definitely recommend checking out. He's really good. First time I've seen him. And I think he's definitely one to watch. He's been on Radio 1 quite a bit this year. Um, mm-hmm. He was one of their like, artists of the week, I think, a few months back. For those is- who don't know, can you explain what Thekla is and what makes it so special? Sure, yeah. Uh, hopefully many of our listeners will know already, mm-hmm. but Thekla is it's a music venue and club in Bristol, which is moored down at the harbour, and I think it's one of the best music venues in Bristol, if not the country, just because it is so unique. It's on mm-hmm. a boat, it's got a great sound system, and um, yeah, I'd recommend going along to a gig there if you haven't already. Okay, so what have they done then to sort of kick off their celebrations at the Harbour Fest? Well, they kind of... They basically said Alex Black is the manager of Thekla um, and he said that in the past they have celebrated the anniversary of it becoming a club, which is what Matt was just alluding to. But this year they thought, why not just celebrate the boat kind of being made? Mm. Um, so it was made in 1958 in Germany and they just used the Harbourfest, as I said, as an opportunity to um, celebrate her birthday. I refer oh. to her as her because, you know, that's how you refer you're supposed to. to. You kind of yeah. do, don't yeah. you? Yeah. yeah but in my head on it sounds weird. I've got an article going out this weekend to kind of do a timeline of events and pictures and stuff. And the highline says, you know, celebrating Thekla as she turns. And then Luke saw it. Luke's our editor. And he was like, her? What are you on about? <laughs> but that's how you should refer to vessels. Well, well, is it not? That's he's, how... He is from Preston. What, are you saying he's too landlocked to know? Or... <laughs> <laughs> no, I know. I, that was, that, I'm sorry, Preston. I'm yeah. sure some of them have been on boats. I'm sure well, some of them are very boat savvy. Let's yeah. do a poll. Are you from Preston? Have you been on a boat? <laughs> Please get in touch. <laughs> Please get in touch. Well, we know we have um, listeners from Japan now, don't we? Do we? After earlier oh, yeah. discovery oh, of course. earlier. Yeah, the, the website that included Alex's um, story about last week's podcast. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Japanese website, I gather. So I hope they enjoy it very, very much. <laughs> Were you on last week's podcast as well? I was, yeah. yeah. Why like, have I asked you on here again? <laughs> well, yeah, you were desperate. And here I am. <laughs> as is usually we needed finished. another That's jingle. We, yeah, we needed to fill up space. Um, and here I am talking about a boat. But not any boat. A very special boat. It is a very special boat. Have you? Do you know any sort of quirky stories about the boat? I mean, sixty years is quite a long time, and it has been a music venue for 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 a long period of time as well, with some amazing acts. So, is there are there any quirky stories to come out of it? I'm not sure about quirky, but certainly interesting. Well, in my opinion, anyway. Um, I think after it, it was initially a cargo boat for like the first fifteen years. I think it was maybe ten. And it was repeatedly battered by high seas as it took timber from port to port around the world. And I think it was around 1972, it was kind of beyond repair almost. Um, They're thinking about scrapping it all together. But then a couple called, let me check my notes, Key Longfellow Stanshaw and Vivian Stanshaw. They clearly took a a shine to her and they bought her in 1982. They turned it into like a touring theatre boat, which went all over. Um, called the Old Profanity Showboat, I think it was. Uh, they brought it to Bristol in 1983. They ran it as a successful tour boat, um, theatre boat. Not a tour boat then, because it was docked in, in Bristol, but it, was, it held kind of cabaret music, everything like that. And then they got kind of tired of running the boat. So it was taken over in 2006 by DHP, and that's the company that currently runs it. But during that time in the 90s, it was like a rented nightclub, um, and that's when it kind of welcomed the likes of Ronnie Size. Porter's Head and Massive Attack. Oh, wow. So it really helped those three massive Bristol acts kind of get to where they are today. So, yeah, it's, it's played a massive part in um, in Bristol's music kind of legacy, yeah. I guess. It's a bit of a music music legend all by itself then, really. Yep, yeah, no, definitely. Um, mm. And I think, you know, recently 
well, last year it was, it was announced that it's kind of under threat. I've actually got an update from Alex on that and he thinks it's going to be okay. What but are the it, reasons behind that? It's basically because a big old housing development has been given the green light by Bristol City Council right opposite it, just over the water. And I think the fear is that the people that move into those flats when they are eventually built are going to start complaining about noise. Yeah, because when we have festivals and things around the centre, a, a lot of the kind of bands that play, bands that I've gone to see and you've gone to see, you know, they play outside Thekla as well. So it's not just on the boat. They they have a kind of wider, I don't know, I guess, venue in the car park when, when things are going on. Yeah, but I guess those those acts will be kind of um, licensed to finish at 11 or, or even 10. But the reason they're worried is because the gigs on on. Thecla, although Thecla is soundproofed, they're right that hasn't got adequate soundproofing to prevent noise travelling across. Because I think they've had a few complaints from the houses over the river. But the worry is that with these added houses, it might contribute to an, a number where Bristol City Council have to uh, kind of revoke the licence, which would obviously oh. be a massive shame. But Alex is feeling confident due to the amount of support shown last year um, that it will be okay. So we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, because I mean, generations of obviously Bristolians, but also the thousands and thousands of students that end up in Bristol um, and obviously a part of student life going out in Bristol will have been to Thecla. So that's it's got a lot of history there. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Loads of history. And as we've seen in recent times, you know, the Surrey Vault's closing and threats to the fleece. I think we do have to really stand up and protect Bristol's nightlife, not just because it's, it's you know, what makes the city so vibrant, um, but because it brings in so much money for the, you know, local economy. I think it's important to stand up and fight for all the all the clubs here. Am I right in saying that Thecla had a Banksy on it? You would be right in saying that. My knowledge of that actually isn't too great, but I think it was like a Grim Reaper. Yeah, and, it was. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and the Harbourmaster painted over it. They did I paint think, over it, yeah, which during obviously the caused a bit of an upset. They went to, didn't they? Something like, they were going to keep it, but then it was being corroded away by the water. So I think it's in the M-shed now. Yeah, it's on display in the M-shed, yeah. Why I ask is I took my American friend on a tour of Bristol and having told her Banksy's from Bristol, she wanted to see quite a few of the, the Banksy's around Bristol, took her to Thecla, looking all around this boat, and some guy on the boat, possibly someone who works there, sort of looking at us weirdly. And I was like, is there Banksy on here? And he was just like, no, love, that's in the M shed. And I was right. like, oh, okay, yeah. Did she go back to America after that? She <laughs> yeah, she just left. She was like, I'm going to catch my flight, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Did you see it in Emshed? No, we'd walked past there already, so we just carried oh, on right. going. I was like, no, let's not walk back. So was that the one you missed off on your Banksy tour then? <laughs> yeah, we did. Got to see a, a few though. Yeah. It's good. It's a nice way to kind of see a bit more of Bristol and refresh your knowledge of all the different streets because you don't really roam like that. <laughs> yeah. What else is going to be in your article this weekend and why should people give it a look? So it's hopefully, I was going to say, coming out tomorrow like an album. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's dropping tomorrow, fresh off the uh, studio. What did you ask again? <laughs> I got sidetracked. <laughs> uh, what's going to be in the article? Yes, so it's hopefully going to be on the website tomorrow or Sunday. It includes a bit of the history about Thecla. There's going to be a timeline kind of showcasing all the, the key dates in her history, as well as a picture gallery. So the team behind Thecla, DHP, very kindly sent me a gallery of old pictures you know, when it was a cargo ship being battered around, when it was partially submerged in the North Sea, well, one of the seas. <laughs> Complete guess one there. Of the, yeah, literally <laughs> stab in the dark. One of the one of the seas up to where it is today. So I think, well, hopefully our readers will find it interesting. Yeah, definitely. I'm d I'm definitely going to take a look. Mm. Thecla holds a special place in my heart. I've played there before mm. in the past and it's just one of those venues that is wherever you go in the country... Everyone knows. Yeah, exactly. Thecla. Yeah, it really is unique. Um, it's, 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 yeah, it's, it's such a great venue. And I think we saw that more than ever, obviously, last year when it was announced that it was under threat, you know, people pouring in praise from all over the place, not just Bristol. Um, you look at the bands that have played there, not mm. just Matt's ex-bands. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, you've got the XX, Calvin Harris, LaRune, Metronomy, Florence and the Machine, Foles, Futureheads, countless major acts who have, um, you know... Grace the stage, I guess. Grace the stage, yeah. yeah. Yeah, definitely. And and it, it's a good thing that they are celebrating its 60th anniversary, but it's also a reminder of how important it is and, and what a shame it would be if we lost a venue like that here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it'd be a huge blow for music, um, music in Bristol. 
So let's let's just hope that the developers take heed of the the warning, and mm. uh, we have sixty more years of Thecla. Yeah, you are. Uh, we're going a bit off topic, but I, I, I thought then. it'd be interesting. <laughs> you are. No, I'm not going to say because you're telling it to me. I'll only sing to you in private, Robin. It's okay. <laughs> Ooh, she doesn't. Um, but you are a huge music fan of a lot of different genres. So not mm-hmm. to put you on the spot, but what are you listening to? Are you listening to any Bristol artists at the moment? Any that you'd recommend to our listeners? Oh, that's a nice question. My favourite band at the moment aren't from Bristol. They're not even from the UK. They're okay. from Baltimore. I saw them on Friday in Ashton Gate, though. So sort of a Bristol link. That's um, Future Islands. Very good live. Three good albums. In terms of Bristol acts, I would obviously recommend Harvey Corson, who I mentioned earlier. He's got some really good stuff and he's got some new EPs coming out soon. I guess Idols, obviously, they're they're getting massive. Matt's a big fan of Idols, I believe. Yeah, um, I haven't actually seen very, them live yet, but I've heard they're... Very intense. Yeah. Very good. A statement to watch. That wow. is a review yeah. and a half. Very intense. Very good. <laughs> a statement to watch. A statement to watch. <laughs> there are loads but, of Bristol bands. Though, like, the Brist- Bristol bands that I, I love. Swimming Girls, George Clue, George Stevie Clue. Parker... There's just there's just so many that are like not just oh these are great local bands these are great bands that could be huge they're on the cusp of being huge uh, there's like Meadowlark there's so many fantastic artists yeah I think it's an exciting time for Bristol music really um, I also saw a bit of Fawcett who I'd never heard of before but they were playing just before Harvey Corson on the outdoor stage at Thurkler on Sunday and they seem really good so I think there are quite a few bubbling under the surface who hopefully will go on to um, attract some wider praise amazing well thanks Robin and enjoy your festival on the weekend any jingles no (laughs) this is a serious podcast (laughs) yeah I hope it doesn't um, rain on you like Travis like Travis (laughs) cheers cheers thank you bye Thanks, Robin, for talking to us about Thecla. A bit of lightheartedness to finish off the show. It's been a great show this week. Please remember to rate, review or subscribe to us at Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcasts from. Please follow us on Twitter as well at IBL Podcast. Or if you want to give me any feedback, it's at Bron Weatherby. Um, until next week, have a great weekend, guys. Goodbye. Goodbye.